It is March 24th, uh, Wednesday night. We are in Matthew 24, and I want to start in, in Matthew 23. In, in Matthew 23, Jesus had been dealing with the Pharisees, and then he turns to his disciples and he addresses his disciples. And he acknowledges that the Pharisees, really the Sanhedrin, not just the Pharisees, have a position of authority ordained by God. Romans 13 says every authority that exists is one that's ordained by God. He said, however, don't do what they do. You need to listen to them because they're in a position of authority, but don't do the things they do. And then he gives a list of things that we're not to do like them, right? And we cover that. We talked about the titles and how they wanted to be esteemed as great and Nearly everything that they did is present in the church today. I've been a part of it. I helped institute it, and I was wrong then, and I would be wrong today if I did it. When the Bible teaches about not calling somebody master, not calling somebody rabbi, not calling somebody teacher, and then we see those things happen, and it's more complicated than just not calling somebody that. Obviously, Jesus was called a rabbi, and he was called teacher, and there's an office of teacher in the church. The idea was these guys were lifted up to an infallible position where they considered themselves teachers and everybody else stupid students. They were beyond reproach, beyond uh, question. They considered themselves fathers and the rest of the people ignorant children. And their word was the final word. We talk about how wrong that is, how that kind of papal type authority has no place in the church. Jesus emphasizes that we are all brothers. If you have a teacher... The only teacher you have is the anointed one, the Christ, who happens to use that member of the body to teach you. So you're equals as far as you're standing in the body, and their function happens to be that they teach. And uh, this keeps anybody from having spiritual ownership of you. Just because somebody saw you born again, we, we studied in 1 Corinthians 4, all that means is they were a servant through whom you came to believe. Nothing more. A servant. Not... You know, your Amway upline that you're forever responsible to. And this is important because churches don't teach it this way. And they don't because they want to control people. They, they love you, but they want to have some ungodly control. You're not to be controlled by anything but the Spirit of God. Well, I say all of that to say about Matthew 23 because what he is doing since Matthew 21, he has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay, this is where they proclaimed him a king. They threw down the branches, yelled Hosanna, called him son of David. They called him a son of David because they knew a son of David would come and rule on the throne of Israel forever. They wanted him to be that guy. They wanted him to overthrow the Romans. They were waiting for it. They had seen he had miracle power. They had seen he was awesome. They knew he was called of God. And they were waiting for that. At least the people were. We know from our previous readings that Pharisees were waiting for an opportunity to kill him. They rejected him before he ever got there. But because this is the time of the Passover, Jesus has entered into the temple every day. These events from Matthew 21 until the time he's crucified occur over a four-day period. The reason Jesus entered the temple for four days was because a Passover lamb was taken into somebody's home on the 10th of Nisan, or a bib, depending on, on the year of Jewish have strange months, uh, but Abib or Nisan, the 10th, and he kept it till the 14th, and then you slaughtered it at twilight. Well, he came to the temple on the 10th of Nisan, same time everybody took lambs in their home. They examined him, his teaching and all of those things, in the temple for four days. And then he was killed at twilight on the 14th. We'll study that for Easter. Incidentally, it was a Wednesday. A Wednesday evening he was put in the grave, not Friday. If you ever wondered, you cannot get a 
Sunday resurrection and a Friday crucifixion that be three days and three nights. We borrowed that from the Romans, unfortunately. They, they were just wrong. They are wrong about a great many things, and that was one of them. Uh, and it's because of an incomplete understanding of the Gospels. It's very clear. John 19:21 clears up the whole thing. Uh, and we'll study that for Easter. But what is common that I teach is that he's there for four days being examined. What people don't realize, though, and we're going to get into some end times and stuff in Matthew 24, is he was also examining them. And we know about the Passover lamb being examined, but what we're not as familiar with in shadow and type and what you may never have heard taught is he was also examining them. And he comes to the conclusion that they had a destructive mildew. Now, you're not, you're not misunderstanding me. I, I'm, I said mildew. They had a destructive mildew and the building needed to be torn down. That's, see, and I hate to give you so much background because I don't want this to go over your heads, but flip with me to John 2 real quick. Maybe this will make sense, then I'll, I'll carry on. Y'all know Jesus cleared the temple, right? Made a whip and he cleared the temple? That happened in Matthew 21, which is the last, you know, four or five days of Jesus' life on earth. Well, the problem with that, and it also happens in Mark, you know, all, all, all the Gospels record it. Uh, I'm not positive Luke records it. Multiple Gospels record it. The problem is John is not considered synoptic because his events don't always line up. And they don't know what to do with that. He includes events that nobody else includes. Well, in John 2, verse 12, what does your heading say? Okay, there's a problem, though. If Jesus cleared the temple in John 2, and we still have... Years before Jesus is crucified, I mean, he, he, John the Baptist is still alive here. This is the first six months of Jesus' earthly ministry. How do we have Jesus clearing the temple in Matthew 21 during the last days of his life? See, people have said this is an inconsistency. Somehow John got it out of order. You know, it, poor John, you know, he just didn't spend enough time with Jesus. He, he messed up his chronology. Like every seeming, seemingly contradictory fact in the Bible, when you study a little more, you find out, no, it doesn't contradict. We just have an incomplete understanding. In reality, what Leviticus 14, and y'all can turn there. I'm not going to read all this, but I just I do want you to know where it is in case you decide I lied to you later. You can look it up. In Leviticus 14, uh, you find something. And this is, just, this is kind of a nugget before we get into Matthew 24. It's uh, Leviticus 14, 33. You see regulations for examining a house if it has mildew. Now, this is just a shadow and type. I'm not telling you that this is an exact fulfillment. But I maintain that the reason John records a clearing of the temple early in Jesus' life and the other gospel writers have a clearing of the temple in the last days of his life is because Jesus was fulfilling this scripture. Basically... I guess I can read some of it, and I just won't read it all. Uh, Leviticus 14.33. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as your possession, and I put a spreading mildew in a house in that land, the owner of the house must go and tell the priest, I have seen something that looks like mildew in my house. The priest is to order the house to be emptied. All right, Jesus emptied the temple before he goes in to examine the mildew so that nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. Now, why is he going in the temple or going in the house in this case to make a determination? Is it clean or unclean? He empties it before he goes in. 
He is then to examine the mildew on the walls, and if it has a greenish or reddish depressions that appear to be deeper than the surface of the wall, the priest shall go out the doorway of the house and close it up for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall return to inspect the house. If the mildew has spread on the walls, he is to order that the contaminated stones be torn out and thrown into an unclean place outside the town. He must have all the inside of the wall scraped and the material that is scraped off dumped into an unclean place outside the town. They are to take the other stones to replace these and take new clay and plaster the house. If the mildew reappears in the house after the stones have been torn out and the house is scraped and plastered, the priest is to go and examine it. And if the mildew is spread in the house, it is a destructive mildew. The house is unclean. It must be torn down, its stones, timber, and all the plaster, and take out of the town to an unclean place. It goes on and on and on. Basically what he describes is not one stone in the house can be left on the other. Jesus, when he started his ministry, John records something that the others don't. He goes to the temple and he orders it to be uh, vacated, emptied, so he can inspect it. Now, he didn't tell them that's what he's doing, but their law says that's what he's doing. He examines it and he says, this is a den of thieves and robbers. Man, there's a, there's a mildew in here. The scraping and the plastering and all of that that you see, that is his teaching. That's when he's standing there trying to remove one stone and put in another stone. We're called living stones. We're supposed to be building the house of God. When he says, look at those Pharisees, man. Don't be like them. That's removing a stone and trying to put something better in its place. His teaching was that. See, in the law, we see natural things, but they have spiritual meanings. Not to say there wasn't a natural meaning. If you actually had mildew in your house, they did this. But we're supposed to have eyes to see. So he goes once early in his ministry. Then towards the end of his ministry, he goes a second time. It was recorded in Matthew 21. He pronounces it unclean again. Well, after you've pronounced it once, you've waited a perfect length of time, seven days. Jesus' ministry was perfect. It was not seven days, but it was a perfect length of time. That's what that represents. He goes back and he sees it's still unclean. He orders it empty. Now he's standing in the temple in Matthew 24. The third time, you, there's no longer a, a place to repair. Uh, repairing time is over. After you've been once, you've pronounced it unclean. You've been twice, you've pronounced it unclean. The order is, it's got to be torn down. The third time, it's torn down. Well, in Matthew 24, we'll get into our text. This is, in, I know I'm talking fast. Is what I'm saying making sense to you all at all? Yeah, see, the idea is the, it has nothing to do with mildew. It has to do with something nasty or unclean being in your house. Well, here we're examining God's house. And what's, what is beautiful is you guys are the house of God. So what this building represents is true about your life. You know, just like you're the stones, we're making the dwelling of God as we grow up in the Lord. Uh, and, you know, you don't have mildew in you, but you can be infected with bad thoughts. You can be infected with bad teaching. Uh, and it's got to be torn down. Uh, I didn't say in Matthew 24, but really, let's start in uh, Matthew 23, verse 37, just a little above it, because that'll make what I'm telling you make sense. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. You know what that means? Destroyed, empty, trashed, you know, of, of no use. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, house here means a lot of things. 
Have you ever heard it said like in medieval times or something? The house of Piro suffered greatly. Or uh, the house of so-and-so went out to meet the house of somebody else in battle. House does not just mean a building. It also means the people who reside in the building, a family line. Jesus is speaking about both. The house of Israel is being devastated. But it's typified in that what their nation was centered around was a temple. Zerubbabel's temple, the temple we read about Sunday, that, that was built after the Babylonian captivity. And it's going to be destroyed. Now, Jesus doesn't explain himself here. But as he goes on, this provoked question. And remember, there's no chapter break here. So you just read this like a, let, a letter. He says, you won't see me again until you hear, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He made a statement about a house being destroyed and then about he won't come again. They won't see him again until everybody's saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then it says, Jesus left the temple. This is Matthew 24, 1, but with no break. Jesus left the temple, and as he was walking away, and was walking away, when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Jesus is making more clear what he just said. He said, guys, you see this glory here? The house of Israel is not going to make it. In this temple, not one stone will be left on another. Now, these guys were Jews. They probably thought about. I mean, they'd seen him clear the temple. They, they were there, both clearings. They probably thought about the Leviticus scripture. But they're fixated on, on a couple points. One is, what do you mean the house is going to be torn down? And the other is this thing, you won't see me again until... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they respond to this by saying, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? When will what happen? The temple be torn down. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They want to know three things. When's the temple going to get torn down? You know, uh, what's the sign of your coming? And then when's the end of the age? All three things. Did your Bible say something different, Cass? No, you can read it. No, I was wondering the last scripture in Matthew 23. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Yes, when he comes to set up the kingdom. Right. But see, this stuff's not clear to them. They, they, they didn't see a second coming. They knew of the prophecy and knew of no gap in between. So, so they're confused. They're going, hey, you know, how, when's all this going to happen? You know, we were kind of hoping you were going to kick out the Romans and... You know, we were going to be kings sitting on 12 thrones, you know, like we talked about Jesus. They forgot he also said that he had to suffer and, and rise again, which he told them on many occasions, but they never seemed to get, you know. Uh, and I wouldn't have either. I mean, I'm not saying that belittling them. All these guys were uh, smarter than us. But Titus, in A.D. 66, began the siege of Jerusalem. By A.D. 70, and he's a Roman general, by A.D. 70, there was not one stone left on another. At the temple, Jesus was the Son of God, but at many times he's operating like a prophet because the Spirit's in him. He's, he's speaking the will of the Father. And so when he says the house is left desolate, and then later they ask him about it, he's, I don't want to say receiving more revelation because Jesus walked in revelation, but receiving more revelation, he says, yeah, not one stone's going to be left on another. He knew that because he was the priest that had inspected the house, and he knew it because he could see that the Father was going to do this. And there, there's a lot of reasons. This is one of those things where multiple shadows and types appear. I just want you to be aware of the destructive mildew one. So the disciples are concerned, man. They say, hey, when's all this going to happen? 
When you hear something from God, isn't that the first thing you want to know? Jesus, you said I was going to be a worship leader. You spoke to me, said I'd be married. You spoke to me and told me I would do this. When? He's not trying to trick anyone here. They asked and he's answering. The only reason this is difficult at all is because theologians have worked for centuries upon centuries to make it say something other than what it says. If you take it at absolute face value, then it it makes all the sense in the world. It lines up with Daniel 7, Daniel 9, lines up with 1 and 2 Thessalonians, lines up with the book of Revelation. It is a blueprint to the end times. One thing about the theology that I teach, you don't have to be super, super smart. You don't have to be a huge intellect because I don't make it say more than it does. I mean, this is very simple. Now, having said that, some of these events occurred that he was talking about the temple being destroyed occurred relatively quickly, you know, within 40 years. But other events that they asked him about had to do with the future. And yet other events beyond that future. You know, he said, when will the temple be destroyed? When will you come back? And when will the end of the age be? Those are three totally different things. As Jesus describes it, some of what he describes is applicable to all three. Some's only applicable to two. And, you know, but it, it's relatively obvious. Now I say that right? Okay. What I'm, what I'm getting at is, for instance, Daniel 9 speaks about an abomination that causes desolation. Is everybody familiar with that? Well, Daniel 9 speaks about it, and then between the year 400 and the year 0 A.D., 400 B.C., zero, there was no year 0 A.D., but you, you follow me, uh, there, there was an event that looked like it fulfilled that. Antiochus Epiphanes, a guy, a Syrian, whose name means God manifests, went into the temple, uh, killed the pig on the altar, made Jews eat pork. That was an abomination in the temple that caused desolation. Israel was wiped out. Uh, Judas Maccabeus and some other guys rose up against him, and uh, Israel had independence for a brief time. There were signs in the heavens, all kind of neat things, history records. It mimicked the coming of Christ the second time. I mean, it mimicked it before it even come the first time. Many of the things spoken in Daniel looked to be fulfilled there. And it was an early fulfillment, but it was not the fulfillment. Kind of like somebody prophesies to you, you'll be a worship leader. Then a few weeks later, you're playing the guitar, you get a song. That is a shadow of the fulfillment. It is a fulfillment of sorts, but the greater fulfillment is yet to come. You you got me? So some of what we're going to read was fulfilled in their lifetime. I mean, you could see fulfillments of it in their lifetime, but that does not mean that it was the only or the greatest fulfillment of it. With that in mind, uh, let's read. Jesus answered. They said, hey, we want to know these things. He answers. Watch out that no one deceives you. Isn't it interesting that they ask him a question? First thing he says, hey, be careful that you don't you don't get deceived about this. The church has never been more deceived about anything that I can remember than this. We no more understand his second coming then the first century uh, Jews understood his first coming. You know, it, it really is like the days of Noah, where people are running around all with one idea about what's going to happen, and we're wrong. Uh, Thessalonians, Thessalonians even speaks of God sending out a delusion. I've wondered if the false doctrine that has swept across the world since the 1860s or 70s and is the best-selling books that Walmart has is part of that delusion. I don't know that, but I I do wonder because it leaves people confused. And and I'll 
I'll expand upon that as we go. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now tell me something. Has that been fulfilled? Wars and rumors of wars. Well, of course, there have been wars and rumors of wars. Ever since Jesus died, there's been war on the earth. It's interesting to note a few years before his birth, a few years after his ascension, there was no war. When the Bible says he was the Prince of Peace, there was peace everywhere on the earth. There's not one recorded war during the time period Jesus was on the earth, not anywhere. Is that something? He's the Prince of Peace. But as soon as his presence was removed, there's wars and rumors of wars. But does that mean it's the final fulfillment of war? No, of course not. I know. And, and we've got newspaper prophets. You know, they're interpreting the book of Revelation, interpreting everything based on the headline of the day. Oh, we're at war with Saddam Hussein? He must be the Antichrist. You know? You know, I remember when they were saying it was Mikhail Gorbachev. I've even heard people say it was Daddy Bush, George Bush the first, because he'd mentioned New World Order and all. You know, God's not changing his mind like that. If you had lived in our parents' generation, you would have said it's Hitler. You know? Because he's, he, he was an Antichrist. He was just not the Antichrist. There are continual, kind of like commercials for the main event that are reminding his body of what's going on. So wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Such things must happen. Guys, don't fret when you see evil stuff going on. Don't fret when you see wars and those kind of things. You can hurt for the people. You can be moved in the spirit for the people, have compassion, pray, heal, do all of those things. But don't be dismayed. It's got to happen that way. It has to happen that way. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, these are two slightly different words that he's using, just like in English. But they mean pretty similar to the same thing. So why would he say it twice? Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The United States may rise against Russia. Not really, but I'm just saying that. The United States will rise against Russia and kingdom against kingdom. Why say it twice? Because there are nations made up of men that are rising against each other, but there are also kingdoms made up of spiritual forces that are rising against each other. That, that's, that's pretty much what I take out of that. The other possible thing is nations has to do with races, nationalities, and kingdoms have to do with political divisions. Either way you look at it, it it's beautiful, but I'm just telling you what I see there. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Did you hear that? The beginnings of birth pains. Every time we have an earthquake, everybody says, oh, the, the earthquakes are getting more and more frequent. And this, this points to an any day coming. No, it really doesn't. It, it points to the fact that these are the beginnings of birth pains. You know, I, I suspect that this kind of event will be something that the children, I'm talking about real children of God, have no problem determining. You know, we won't have to guess at this. Okay? You don't have to go buy somebody's best-selling book to figure it out. The spirit in you is going to show you. Man, it's at hand. Okay, all these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Did that happen in their lifetime? Sure. Is it still happening? Yes. And so you see an early fulfillment and one that is yet to come. In their lifetime... Prior to the destruction of the temple, the Romans were decimating them. I mean, 50,000 Christians died in one year in the arena during the time the movie Gladiator took place, around A.D. 140 under Marcus Aurelius. 50,000 Christians. They dressed them like lambs, put them in the 
Colosseum and fed them to wolves in front of the crowds because that's good entertainment, right? That spirit later, just a hundred years, two hundred years after that, took over the church. What did, what did Paul say? And I'm sorry I'm there, but what did Paul say? He said, watch out for... Huh? Yeah. Wolves in sheep's clothing. He told the Ephesian elders that. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Y'all know the story of Rome's birth? Romulus and Remus, two boys nursed by a she-wolf. Yeah. And, and one day that, those wolf boys put on sheep's clothing. That's interesting. And, and incidentally, in Ephesus, where Paul said that would happen, is the place the church council met and declared Mary to be the mother of God. But I'm sure that was just a coincidence. Uh, yeah, you, you can check me. That's 351 A.D. Uh, anyway, uh, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. And will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. You know, Jesus couldn't have meant that. He could not have meant that because Charles Stanley said he doesn't mean that. He couldn't have meant that because the entire Southern Baptist denomination says this doesn't mean that. Now, are we that stupid? When Jesus says, at that time many will turn away from the faith, what do you think that means? It means at that time many will turn away from the faith. You cannot be a part I mean, you can't turn away from something you were never a part of. So I don't care who tries to cram some feel-good doctrine down your throat. When they're asking how to know when he'll return, what, what all these things... He said, guys, many are going to depart from the faith. One of the things that will let you know that Jesus is about to return is you'll see mass apostasy. Not just a little bit here and there. Not somebody whose mother died and they don't understand. I'm talking about in the thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands, people will desert Jesus. Now, why do you think, aside from the bad fruit, why do you think Satan then would create a doctrine, a doctrine of demons that good-meaning people that just don't know any better latch on to? Well, that can't occur, right? People can't desert the faith. It's not possible. It just means that we're, well, we're, we're eliminating signs that Jesus told us about. It creates confusion. Incidentally, if you expect not to be here during these events... You might, and if your hopes are set on that, you might be kind of dismayed when you see the events. And if you were lied to about that, you wonder, what else was I lied to about? And before long, the gospel you received is not the gospel that Jesus gave, and it might contribute to you turning away from the faith. You bought a lie. You bought a lemon. Is what it would feel like. If you get saved to be free from persecution, rich, and have uh, an eternal fire insurance policy that nothing, no matter what you do, can, can go away. When all three of those things turn out not to be true, what did you get saved for? He said, screw this, this is hard. I'm not doing it. You know, give me the mark or whatever, you know. I mean, do you understand what I'm getting at? Okay. I'll try not to be so trite about that. At that time, many people will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Guys, that is, that is as plain as it could possibly be said. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands to, firm to the end will be saved. 
You know, and today the church is teaching just as boldly as can be in this country that you cannot lose salvation and that you do not even stand in this event. Remember, what did they ask? When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your, your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? He who stands to the, fir- to the end, firm to the end, will be saved. You've got to be able to stand through this. You remember I mentioned a, an early fulfillment and a later fulfillment? The temple was destroyed in AD 66. But you know what? There's going to be another temple. See, just because it was destroyed then doesn't mean it's not going to be destroyed again. John said he saw a temple. And he described it. And there's a temple that the Antichrist goes into. Now, how it gets destroyed, I, I'm, I'm unclear about. Maybe it's the war that breaks out that everybody calls Armageddon because it occurs in the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, I don't know. I'm not teaching that part. I'm just telling you. Uh, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. Y'all? The gospel is being preached, but it is not always the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is the kingdom of God is at hand. It is in you. It's near you. It's everywhere you recognize and you submit to the king's diminutive authority. Diminutive means small. I didn't mean it that way. His dominion and authority. That is the gospel of the kingdom. It involves Jesus putting every enemy under his feet and then taking this kingdom and submitting it to the Father so that the whole earth, Corinthians 15, 28, is filled with God's presence in every way. That is the gospel of the kingdom. It starts with Jesus' resurrection, it culminates in ours, and then a millennial reign. Is that gospel being brought everywhere? Of course not. Man, you listen, you hear everything but that. You can sit your whole life in a church and think that the goal of Christianity is to go to heaven. Think that the kingdom of God is heaven. That nothing could be further from the truth. You know, there is, God's kingdom is recognized in heaven, but it's being established on earth. It's the point of the gospel. You weren't made to walk on clouds. You were made to walk on the earth. You know, the meek shall inherit heaven. No, the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The gospel of the kingdom is not being preached everywhere. So I don't care whether there's a 1040 window out there that, you know, people say once we preach to these few people groups, Jesus will come back. Now, there's no guarantee about that because we have not preached the gospel of the kingdom to everyone. Trust me, he's not waiting for us just to throw a switch and uh, got the last one, a track in their hand, so he's coming back. You know, It, it doesn't work that way. He told us to look for some things, and he's going to get a whole lot more specific. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Every nation, every people group, every tribe, tongue, race on the planet will get a shot at the real kingdom message. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Now, I I want you to understand something. When Jesus said this, this is controversial. You know why it's controversial? They all thought that the abomination of desolation had occurred. You know, because Antiochus Epiphanes did it. Now, when I read this, I said, wow, that could have been in A.D. 70, right? Because Titus comes in, he brings in his Roman God standards, he puts them in the temple. So maybe that's what Jesus was talking about. But Paul is very clear in Second Thessalonians that the Antichrist, not Titus, 
But the Antichrist would go into the temple proclaiming himself to be God and sit on God's throne and Jesus would return and destroy him with fire from his mouth. So for the preterist out there or the amillennialist or you know, whatever category people might fall into that think Titus may have been the Antichrist or Nero may have been the Antichrist, or Jesus didn't return and destroy him with fire from his mouth. So either Paul's wrong or they're wrong, and I'm guessing, you know, it's them. So we're supposed to be looking for an abomination that causes desolation that was spoken of by Daniel. You can read about that in Daniel 9, 27, 11, 31, 12, 11, you know, all of those areas. Uh, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Why would you have to flee to the mountains? they're trying to kill you. You mean people are going to be here? Well, yeah, just those bad Christians. We'll see if that's the case. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of his house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for the pregnant women and the nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. The single most ignorant thing I've ever heard from somebody that loves Jesus is because this word flight was used, they thought it was talking about the rapture of the church. I'm talking about an educated man of God. said, well, it says flight. See, the church is flying out. Pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath or on winter. You know, I'm sorry, that is asinine. A flight is a mass exodus from somewhere, you know? Uh, the only way I'd ever heard that word used, and this is very sad, and I apologize, I didn't grow up in a Sunday school environment, was white flight. When an area is predominantly white and small-minded, and people of another race move in, for whatever reason, all the whiteies move out. That is called white flight. Is that because they shot up into the clouds? No, it's because there was a mass exodus of people. The, you know, this... <laughs> This, this obviously does not, not mean that. And honestly, I think the people that I've heard insinuate that are taking advantage of, of people that are just don't know any better. Uh, let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. Incidentally, is that not encouraging? Pray that it not occur at those times. You have some control over it. It's not set. It's set that it will happen. But the day that it happens on is not set. Otherwise, why would you pray? For there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. All right. When this event happens, there may have been lesser fulfillments. There's no doubt in my mind. But in fact, they fled from Jerusalem when Titus came in, you know, And many of these things happen. But this is an event that had never been equaled and will never be equaled again. So there is yet a greater one coming. For that to happen, for for somebody to set up an abomination that causes desolation in the temple. And a time of distress that's been unequaled. What are we missing right now? I mean, think about that. What is not there right now? That you would have to have for there to be an abomination that causes desolation in the temple. There is no temple there right now. There's a gigantic dome of the rock, but not a temple. So when people tell you, and I'm not suggesting they know any better, but when they tell you, you better get right with God tonight. Because in any minute, in the twinkling of an eye, 
He could return. And are you ready? That's not true. Now, the reason that's done is to create a sense of urgency to get you to make a decision. And while I applaud that from a salesman's perspective, it's not the way that Jesus really does that. Uh, He told us to look for certain things for a reason. He's not trying to trick us. Now, the twinkling of an eye part, we can get into all that later. Your body's changed in the twinkling of an eye. His coming is not the twinkling of an eye. It's a, it's a massive worldwide event. Like lightning that starts in the east is visible even in the west. It's going to be visible to every person. It's your body changing that happens in the twinkling of an eye. When you get glorified, it's not a thousand-year metamorphosis. It's instant. Oh, I'm glad. That's right. My hair will come back. You know. <laughs> My pecs will come back, you know. Yeah, that's, uh, let's see. I never, if those days had not been cut short, now listen to how he's speaking about that. He's speaking about it as if it's already occurred now. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the, <clears throat> the what? I thought those guys weren't going to be here. Must just be those Jews, right? Hmm. But Cornelius was called elect. Was he a Jew? You mean there can be the elect of God? The elect, generally speaking, is the Jews. And what does Paul say you are spiritually? Grafted in. You're a Jew. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. Guys, even when you see rumors of wars, you see um, famines, you see mass apostasy, and you see an abomination that is causing desolation set up in the temple, you still don't run out and look for Jesus. Well, why don't you? Because His coming will be unmistakable. You don't have to run out to the desert to see Him. You don't have to go to a special church to see Him. It's not, get this, it is not a secret event. Alright? Now that's news to a lot of people because I, I think it's First Thessalonians 5.8 that speaks of it catching people by surprise. Well, was the flood, Noah's flood, was it a secret event? Well, it wasn't secret to anybody. They saw the flood waters rising. They saw rain. But did it catch some by surprise? Yes. Something can surprise you without it being a secret event. If you hadn't been watching the news and... Uh, you wake up on, you know, January 27th, Sunday this, this last year, uh, and you turn on the TV, you might be surprised the Super Bowl's on. But it certainly was not a secret event. You just had not been tapped into the broadcast. We're tapped into the broadcast. None of this will surprise us. It will surprise some people, but it is not a secret event. Okay. So if anyone tells you, there, he's out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, guys, what will be the sign of of the destruction of the temple? What will be the sign of his coming and of the end of the age? He's given us several signs, but Lord, this is the biggest one. The Son of Man, when he comes, is going to be like lightning that is visible in the West, even when it starts in the east. In other words, in the eastern sky, it will light up and stretch across the western sky. So that everybody will see it. The book says every eye will see it. There is no secret rapture. I don't care what anybody says. says, Jesus, I want to know about your coming. He tells them. 
You know, it's going to be visible like lightning. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Now that threw me for a long time, but I I realized he's talking about a a bunch of things. But, But one is, Abraham, when he went into a deep sleep before God, because God was giving him a covenant, Uh, In Genesis 15, there were carcasses on the ground that were split into symbolizing the covenant and vultures came and swooped down and the people of God, Abraham, had to beat them off. What he's trying, what he's alluding to that they, they understood that we don't is, guys, I'm telling you about this and the way that this will happen. And you people of faith are going to have to beat off the powers of the air. I mean, that's what he's alluding to in the in. Most people, I don't think, get it. Immediately after the distress of those days. All right, now, I want you to hear that. He says that the coming of the Son of Man will be visible. All right, And he talked about the days leading up to it. And he says, immediately after the distress of those days. So we're going to have a time of distress. And now we're going to talk about the events after the time of distress. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, at what time? At that time, what does that refer to? Yeah, immediately after the distress of those days. At that time, immediately after the distress of those days. So we're talking about the time period that is immediately after the distress. Okay, that's key. If you don't get anything else I'm teaching tonight, it's that verse 30 forward is after the distress of those days. At that time, the sun, the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all nations on the earth will mourn. All nations on the earth will mourn. They will see the coming of the son. I'm sorry. They will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Guys, Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He tells about all the distress. Then he says, after the distress of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. That is this sun being darkened and stuff, by the way. That, that, those are the signs that are appearing in the skies. He says, after the distress of those days, the sign will appear in the sky. And every nation will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky. Now think about this. What, when Jesus ascended... Do you remember what uh, Matthew says it? Uh, several places say it. John says it. There's an angel who says, hey, what are you looking for? You know, because they watched Jesus go up into the clouds until he wasn't visible. He said, this same Jesus, whom you saw ascend this way, will return this way. Now, incidentally, you read the book of Daniel. Daniel 7 speaks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. Incidentally, it also talks about some antichrist-like power. It does not call him an antichrist. calls him a horn, which means authority. Was persecuting the saints and calls them saints to the point where none would have been left if the courts had not been convened and Jesus did not come back on the clouds. All right? I wrote a paper on this called Setting the Stage. If you ever want to see all the scriptures laid out in a logical order so that you can teach on this with... Um, a more comprehensive approach, read it. Okay, not because I wrote it and it, it's, it's not that the penmanship's great, it's that all the information's there. 
Okay. At that time, the sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. When he returns with great power, great glory for all of the world to see, he gathers his elect to himself. Now, Thessalonians says with the trumpet call of of an archangel. Well, here he's speaking about angels. And we will rise to meet him in the air. Yeah, because he's returning to the earth. And we're glorified with him in the air before everybody to see. Okay. And I can teach on this many other times. But in any case, just to keep going. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. They want to know signs. He's giving them more signs. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near. It uh, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation, and what does your footnote say? Race will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, this is one of those Bible translation things. If there was anything that's confusing about what I've taught so far, this is it. Generation also means race. Unfortunately, when this word is used in this context, most of the time, and almost every other time, it means generation is in time period that you're living, not race. But it can mean race. We automatically read it as race. Why? Because all of these things did not happen during their generation. So we're left with no other choice. If we were subject to somebody's argument or skepticism, that would be where it is. Some people have their end times views based on this all happening in the first century because of this verse. The problem is, while there were many earlier shadowings of it, not everything he said. There's no way to get for the angels going to the four corners of the earth gathering the elect. It did not happen. I know based on everything else Jesus said, his word is true. Based on what he's done and his testimony in my life. So I'm waiting for this yet to happen. But what am I waiting for? I'm waiting for a time of great distress, followed by the sign of the Son of Man in the sky, followed by every nation mourning and seeing him coming with great glory and power to gather his elect. Uh, the fig tree, incidentally, most people think is Israel. And it, it was birthed again in, in May 14th, 1948. Now, as it begins to produce the fruit, that's what fig trees do. They're supposed to produce fruit. If they don't, they get cursed. We, we studied that in Matthew. You remember Jesus went by the fig tree and he didn't see any fruit on it. He cursed it. Well, as that fig tree does start to produce fruit, we know it's also the times near. Now, from your other readings, what has to happen in Israel you know of before Jesus returns? has to produce fruit. There's going to be an end times revival. All right. See, Matthew 24 provides the framework. All the other scriptures fall right into it. And if you don't have some second and then third coming, like most, uh, what do they call them themselves? Uh, pre-tribulation rapturist, which is all we've ever known. And it came out of Dallas Theological. I mean, it's, the teaching's not 150 years old yet. If you don't have a second and third coming, this makes perfect sense. So does First and Second Thessalonians read together. So does Daniel. And so does the book of Revelation. You know, and the biggest, biggest things that people say against it that are negative is God would never beat his bride. Well, no, he doesn't. We're not appointed for God's wrath. We're, we're appointed for the devil's wrath, though. It's not God who's punishing us. The devil is 
they're fighting with us, we resist him, and that brings God glory. Uh, bowls of wrath and those things that are poured out, he'll be a wall of fire around us. You know, it, it won't harm us. Anyway, let's keep reading with this. And on another night, I will go into Thessalonians, I promise. I'll, I'll go into Revelation. I'll go anywhere y'all want to go. I'm, I'm hoping to, uh, to get to a certain place in the book of Matthew by Easter. That's what I'm trying to do. So, I, you know, I can't, I can't go into this in the way that we normally would. I mean, Matthew, we could, 24, we could spend six weeks on. In fact, we've all been in places where we, we have. Uh, no one knows about that day or hour. In other words, hey, I can't give you a specific time. Why? Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. If there was ever a scripture that led you to believe that there was a trinity, regardless of how you define it, but let's just say uh, three personalities, not, not necessarily distinct. You know, I, I don't care how people define I don't want to get into semantics. But this is an, an instance clearly where you can see Jesus did not know something that the Father knew. Now, the question is, as soon as he was raised from the dead and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, I, you know, of course he knew. He's the fullness of God now. Uh, and I don't say now as if he wasn't before, but he limited himself. Philippians says it. And this is an example of him being limited. My United Pentecostal friends would say, the flesh didn't know. And that's okay. I don't care how you describe it. But you definitely see three parts to the one God here. Okay? Any, whether you call that a trinity or you call it three parts to the one God or... You know, the shell, the yolk, and the, you know, other part of the egg, or, you know, uh, steam and, sn- and uh, snow and uh, water, or, you know, any billion other um, analogies. The idea is there are three parts to one God. However you describe that, and I don't really care. Yeah, peanut M&M, there's a candy coating, there's the chocolate, and there's the peanut, but it is all one M&M, baby. As it was, in the, now this is misunderstood and I've got to cover it. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Now, I have heard for most of my life, that the coming of the Son of Man will be as it was in the days of Noah. And what this means, I was told, was that we will be lifted high above the earth while all the judgment is occurring on the earth. Is that what he said? Not at all. What did he say? He said people would be going about their daily business until the flood came and took them all away. Uh, I'm sorry. The righteous were inside the boat or outside the boat? They were inside the boat, weren't they? So who did the flood come and take away the wicked the lost people so who gets taken away at the coming of the son of man the wicked it'll be like it was in the days of Noah some are saved and the rest are taken in judgment see they were taken in judgment incidentally I mean I don't want anybody to think I make this stuff up turn to Proverbs 10.25 yeah oh we're going to get there we're going to get there. I just have got to put some reasonable time limit on the teaching, but we will get there. Proverbs 10. Now, I realize you can string any two scriptures together and, and make an erroneous point. Okay, I'm not trying to do that. I just, I just want to plant a thought here. And guys, check me out. If you think I'm wrong, that's okay. When I first heard this, I was sure the person was wrong. And 
Now here I am teaching it. Yeah, Mandy wanted to stone me over this. When the storm, this is Proverbs 10.25, when the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. Incidentally, in John uh, 16 or 17, and I think it's 16, Jesus prayed. He prayed first for his disciples, then he prayed for all believers. Do you remember that? My prayer, Father, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. See, Scripture does line up with Scripture here on this point. The, in Noah's day, the wicked were taken. It was the righteous that stood firm. Uh, Jesus' prayer was that. Proverbs agrees with it. In Matthew 13, you see the wheat and the tares. If an enemy sow seed in your field, what do you do? You let them grow together, and then the angels come and do what? They tear out the tares. They, they remove the tares and burn them. So if somebody was being taken away at the coming, who would it be? The wicked. So I'm not so sure I want to be raptured. You know, it seems like those guys are taken in judgment. So what does it mean to be caught up in the air? Because rapture doesn't occur in the Bible. I mean, rapture is supposed to be uh, uh, rendered from the Latin word that, that means caught up. And, of course, the English word means like uh, ecstasy, del- delighted. And his second coming is rapturous. It's beautiful. And we are caught up. So that much is true. But we are caught up to rise to meet him in the air, which is what it says. Which way is he coming? This way. And, you know, First uh, Thessalonians 4.17 finishes with, and we will always be with him. Not in the air. With him. On the earth. Which is where he's coming. See, it's not some... Middle of the night secret event where all of a sudden there's little neat piles of clothes folded and everybody wonders where we are. It is done before the whole world. We who have been treated like garbage and refuse before the whole world will be honored before the whole world. They will see it. In fact, you know, there's some Old Testament prophets that indicate that they, they basically hide and urinate on themselves. Really? I mean, I, I know that sounds like I'm making it up. I'm not. Uh, Well, you know, you know what the hardest thing for me was about this teaching. I just when I when I learned this, I just bought my parents a, a picture for about four hundred bucks that had a church with a sign out front that said "closed due to rapture." And see, not only did I not want to admit that I was wrong, I sure didn't want to admit everybody I knew was wrong. And then last, I didn't want to have just wasted four hundred bucks. Now, that's a humorous way to point it out, but many godly men have just simply invested too much time in teaching something that is not true and it is hard for them to back up from it because they've invested too much in it. And make no mistake, godly men do depart from that teaching on a regular basis and they're almost never to be heard from again. You know, I can't tell you the number of people that have dissented at Dallas Theological that are no longer welcomed at Dallas Theological because of this one point. Marvin Rosenthal is one of them. I still don't agree with everything he says, but I'm glad he, he did you know, get the chronology in, in the way that I think is obvious in the Bible. But let's keep going. Uh, that, let's see, verse 39. And knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, you be honest with me. If you've never heard what I said about Noah... Surely you've heard about the rapture, so to speak, that two will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Being the guy taken is raptured. I have a picture of it. 
All right? That's taught everywhere in its context. Is that what Je- Jesus is talking about being taken in judgment. What is the next one? You never hear this. Two women will be grinding at the hand meal. One will be taken and the other left. Turn with me to ele- uh, Exodus 11. See if I make this up, guys. See, it, sometimes the truth is hard. It's hard because we didn't have it and we have to admit that we didn't have it. I, I'm not saying this as if I'm some kind of expert in eschatology. I'm saying this if, if you just take the scripture for what it says and don't read anything else into it, it, it explains itself about the two women at the hand meal. Start in um, verse 4. So Moses said, this is what Yahweh says. About midnight I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits at the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand meal. All right, now, who's dying? I mean, see, this is the same spirit in which Jesus then is talking about two women at the hand meal. One will be taken, one will be left. In fact, his coming is very, very much like the exodus from Egypt. You know, the spirit of death came through. Those under the blood were protected while all the Egyptians died. You see, that that's the exact same, same thing. Uh, I don't know. I just want you to get out of that. It's the wicked that are taken, not the righteous. So what's he tell us to do? Therefore, keep watch. Jesus, why would we do that? You obviously have not read the best-selling books. We will not be here. Why would we keep watch? In fact, why are you telling us this? Any day now, you know, we'll, we'll be, I'll fly away. You know, and what is absurd about it is by the time it passes from the great-great-grandfather on down to us, we act like it's always been the teaching. It was never the teaching. Not even the Roman church and all of its corruptness and all of its garbage, just refuse that they spewed out upon the world. Did they teach this? Now, I'd like to blame it on them. I would. I, everything else I blame on them. You know, they plunged the world into a, a period of darkness called the Dark Ages. And it's their, they did that. That spirit did that. But this... We have some of our very own American denominations to blame for. So, in any case, we'll point out the truth, let people see error wherever. I I don't need to pick on anybody else. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now get this. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household? to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for the servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Those of us that are waiting for his coming, that are looking for it, that are watching for it, are the ones that receive the earth as our inheritance, all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. Which servant is the one who, who uh, doesn't expect him? The wicked one. And at an hour where he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where he will be, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The idea here is there's two kinds of servants. 
It's going to be an hour that somebody doesn't expect him. The one that goes out and acts like he'll never return, it's going to get cut up and, th- and thrown outside the camp. But the ones that are looking for him will receive the earth as their possession. Now, we're, we're going to close, but i got just a few minutes left. I think I can fit on a CD. So turn with me to Thessalonians, because I, I don't want it to seem as if I'm avoiding the very scriptures that uh, people think prove their point. So let's start with first, and then we'll go to second. First Thessalonians 4.1, and I'd love to read this whole book in its entirety, but I, I can't. So I just, you know, we'll go over some of this and cover the best we can in the last few minutes. Uh, we'll start in verse 13. First uh, Thessalonians 4.13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So when Jesus comes back, who comes with him? Those who fell asleep. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Precede them how? Being raised from the dead. That's right. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The first thing that happens when the angels go out to gather the elect from the four corners is the dead in Christ rise. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them, with those who had died and are now glorified and raised to meet him and with Jesus, In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So get this. Number one, the dead in Christ have to rise first. Number two, then we rise. Number three, we meet the Lord and we're with him forever. Now turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. We'll clear this up real quickly. When you write a letter to somebody, if it were possible to misunderstand it, it's okay. He wrote a second letter. The second letter is for the purpose of making the first one more clear. Listen how he says this. First Thessalon- or Second Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered with him. Is there any question that we're talking about the same events that he just described? It's our being gathered to him. And this is also the same question, really, that the uh, disciples were asking Jesus. They just didn't know about the gathering yet. But now they know about Jesus' teaching and they're asking Paul for more clarity. So we're talking about being gathered together. We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy. It's, it's interesting to note that the teaching of rapture, a, a young woman prophesied that she saw people flying off in the air to meet the Lord. And that really began, somehow or another, it got recorded in a Schofield Bible, made it back to the States, became a, a standard teaching uh, in Dallas Theological Seminary and has infected the whole world, like that mill do. By some prophecy report, and, and that church does not even believe in prophecy. Isn't that interesting? Okay, but anyway. Alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, what day? The day the Lord comes and we're gathered with him will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. You remember Matthew 24? He says immediately after the distress of those days, 
Then he describes the coming. Well, here he says the same thing. The day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs. No, no matter any way you look at it, there has got to be a rebellion, a tribulation period that occurs before his coming. There is no way around that, no matter how bad the American church does not want to suffer. It's all right, because in addition to the rebellion occurring, we know an apostasy has to happen too. And I can guarantee you where that will come from. (laughs) Americans are good for something. Well, how will we know this stuff? Verse 4, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Didn't Jesus tell us to look for the abomination that causes desolation? Didn't he say Daniel talked about it? So, man, how are we going to know when Jesus comes? Well, there's going to be a great rebellion. There's going to be a guy that walks in the temple and says he's God. And most of the world's going to go for it. Who do you think is going to rebel? The Jews and the Christians. Maybe some of our Islamic brothers. I don't know. It's interesting to note, though, that Islam is waiting for Jesus to return. Did you all know that? Muslim people are waiting for Jesus to return. Do you know what he's going to do in their mind? He's going to appear over the Mount of Olives, just like we think, right? He then is going to land on the Mount of Olives. He's going to walk across the Kidron Valley. He's going to go into the Dome of the Rock. He's going to take a knee and proclaim that Muhammad was right. That's what they say. So they're waiting for a return, just like we're waiting for a return. Okay? They believe that there's going to be a temple. They believe that Jesus is going to enter the temple. The Jews, you know what they're waiting for? Messiah to come. You know what Messiah's going to do? It's going to bring peace to Israel. So can you see how if there is a temple there that an Antichrist figure uh, negotiates peace between Jews and uh, Muslims, could, could proclaim himself God and have people believe him? Well, sure, it's what everybody's waiting for. Even us. We just have more insight into it than they do. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? In other words, guys, come on, man. Don't misunderstand. I'm telling you right now the same thing I've always taught. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. I've heard every crazy thing about what's holding him back, but I believe Daniel 12 says it's Michael, the prince who watches over God's people. He says, at that time, your prince, Michael... The prince who watches over God's people will rise. And then he describes these same events. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back, we're talking about the power of lawlessness, will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. In other words, Michael, the prince that God has stationed in that area, is preventing these things from happening until God removes him so that they can happen. He's preventing it. Why would he prevent it? Because the gospel's got to get out. And then, once Michael's taken out of the way, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. We're going to see Jesus destroy the Antichrist. Because we can't go anywhere until the rebellion occurs. The man of lawlessness is revealed. And when he's revealed, Jesus is going to destroy him at his coming. The same coming that we're glorified in. See, it's all one event. It is the day of the Lord, not the part one day, the part two day, and the part three day that we've been taught to believe. Um, I, I know most of you all know this already, but hopefully this, this helps you. And he destroys him by the splendor of his coming. And 
I'm going to go ahead and read this next part just because I can't hardly not. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracle signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Get this. Why do people perish? They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God, not the devil, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. If you do not want God's truth, if you want it your way, like at Burger King, if you want it your way, God will make sure that you get it your way and you'll burn for it. See, he does not go about convincing everybody that he's right. He offers the truth. If you refuse it because your way's better, he'll let you have what you want. Incidentally, if you'll flip back one page, I'm going to read one more thing. That's one page of my Bible. It might be ten in yours. I don't know. First uh, Thessalonians 5. I want to address this thief in the night thing and then we quit. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. Why didn't Paul need to write to you about times and dates? Because Jesus said he didn't know. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Oh, see, Eric's been lying to you. There's a thief in the night rapture. Watch. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. So there are, there's a group of people that are going to be surprised. It'll come on them suddenly and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Now, does it get any clearer than that? You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. He goes on to teach, and and this where you hear we're not appointed for wrath. And we're not. Who is appointed for wrath? At his coming, the wicked are appointed for wrath. But this day will not surprise us. We are not of the darkness. We're of the light. There is a group of people that are surprised. And just like Noah's flood washed away the wicked, the day of the Lord will wash them away. There will be one in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. There will be two at a hand meal. One will be taken. The other will be left. Taken in judgment. Not taken to be glorified. You don't need to fear the day of the coming of the Lord. This is why Joel said... And then Peter later quoted the great and terrible, the great and dreadful, the great and awesome. It's great for some, it's dreadful for others. It's awesome for some, it's terrible for others. You know, this is kind of like when Paul's talking, he said, hey, you know, what if the maker of the vessel waited with great patience the object of his wrath so that he might display his mercy to others? See, he is waiting to judge the wicked because every day he waits, others get saved. His patience in judging the wicked is grace. It's life to us. Now, I don't want to teach anything like this without applying it to our lives. If God is patient with the wicked that He might give grace to others, in our situations when we're demanding judgment, insisting that we're right, and wanting to invoke bad things on other people, we need to be patient in our judgment with them so that they might have a chance to find grace the same way we did. God's been patient with the whole world weeding it out like this. Now, we're going to get into Matthew 25 next Wednesday. And somehow or another, I have got to get to the cross and the resurrection by Easter. But we're only about three chapters away, so I think we can do it. I don't intend for tonight to have been a comprehensive teaching. I hope it was thought-provoking. Now, here's the thing. Just because I'm telling you there's a, not a temple there, and, and all, 
that does not at all mean that you shouldn't be looking forward to. You shouldn't be waiting for the coming of the Lord. You should. We should be watching the events unfold. More than anything, we should be working. In, there's only so many days of light, Jesus said, when a guy can work. Because night is coming. That's your death. When no man can work. Once you are dead, you cannot work. We have a certain number of days in our lives we can work. We need to work while it is day. Because things do have to get done. The gospel's got to go out. I tell you one thing that we're doing, all of us, we're building a foundation so that we are proper ministers for Israel. And it may not be me. It may be my children or my children's children. But Israel's got to get saved. Now, I, I'm interested in building a church in America and seeing Americans get saved. But the purpose of the Gentile church is to cause the Israelites to envy. So what I want to do here is build a group of people that are Israel conscious because they're kingdom conscious. Not a messianic church. Any church that is kingdom conscious is going to love Israel. That's just part of it. So that we can cause Israelites to envy. I'm not going to wear a little kippah and a prayer shawl and blow a shofar in here. I don't need to. I'm not a Jew. I'm not claiming to be a Jew by birth. I'm a Christian who is a Gentile and has been grafted into their promises. I don't cease to be a Gentile. You know? You can grab a, graft a green apple onto a red apple tree and it's still green. You know? And that, that's, we're producing unique kinds of fruit in here. I encourage you to get into the Word more than anything. And I'm included in this. Don't you ever accept at face value what people are spoon feeding you. You have a responsibility to get in and find out for yourself. If you don't like something I teach, that's good. Get in the Word. Let it produce controversy in you. Read. Come back and prove me wrong. If I've sinned or taught something that's not right, hopefully you can convince me. But if I haven't, then your great study will produce growth. That's, that's a preacher's job. That's what I hope to do. So we'll be in Matthew 25. Uh, Sunday, I'm not, not sure what we're preaching on. Sometimes I know and sometimes I don't. And this is one I don't. But let me tell you something. Matthew 25 about the virgins and the talents and the sheep and goats is as good as it absolutely gets. Though there's one resounding message. If you're going to be in the kingdom, you're going to produce its fruit. Otherwise, you're not in the kingdom. And that's not taught anywhere. Stand up. Let's pray.